this morning I want to, I want to, uh, we're, we're looking at the Apostle Peter and his epistles, and uh, um, we, uh, we got a graphic, there we go, all right, good, um, and we're, we're just, it's just an old man reflecting um, on uh, Christ and the church, and, and really a fascinating glimpse into, um, I think, I think a, a perspective on the early church that we sometimes miss. Uh, if you if you've been in church for a long time and you've you've read about the the book of Acts or the Gospels and you've seen the disciples and Jesus and the apostles and and they're they're very they're they're often very two dimensional. It's just kind of something we observe. And I think Peter is a great mitigating influence in that in that his uh, ob- observations and experience as part of the church and as a follower of Christ. Um, he is he is very just he's very he's very honest. He's very um, it's not polished, it's just a, a guy talking about what has happened in his world. And his whole world has been turned upside down. Um, you may remember that he was born uh, Simon, the son of Jonah. Um, but Jesus gives him the name Kepha, or, or uh, in Greek, Petros, which means the, the little rock. All right? um, he, is, he is a little rock, uh, and he takes that name and he carries that name along with him. Uh, in the first couple of weeks, we've talked about a lot of uh, his underlying beliefs, uh, what what Peter believed, and uh, as we pick up in First Peter, we're we're going to deal with what he believes um, we should do. Uh, and so I want to I want to read that passage and then pray and then just kind of spend some time exploring it. Um, and so we're going to be reading from 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the racks in front of you. Page number is in the bulletin. Um, and you can grab that and just follow along. And just what Peter has to say in just a couple of verses. Uh, he begins, he's begun his, his letter talking about Christ, talking about salvation, talking about God. And then in verse 13 he says, therefore. So in response to, so having talked about all the stuff he talks about in the first couple of verses. Now we move from there to this. Preparing your minds for action. uh, Literally tightening your belt. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy... You also shall be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We're just going to camp there this morning for a few minutes, and I'd invite you to join me in prayer. Father, once again we come to your word, believing that all good things descend from you, our Father of lights. We ask for your spirit to move. We ask that he would uh, activate whatever parts of our lives have become dormant. Lord, that he would enliven and quicken our minds and our hearts. Lord, as we spend some time just thinking about this and and contemplating uh, these words that Peter wrote. Help us in the written word to see the living word. That Jesus Christ might be manifest in us and through us, by us, for us. Lord, that we might walk 
and His way. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. The Apostle Peter, having laid down some basic doctrine, his basic beliefs about the nature of God and Christ and, and what, the, what Christians are supposed to do, and he, he covers, you know, he talks about in verse 10, he talks about your salvation. You know, and he talks about how uh, the Old Testament prophets, they didn't really understand what was going on, and, um, and, and isn't this great? And he's, he throws out these little phrases like, you know, the angels wish that they could figure it out, you know, things into which the angels long to look. He's like, he's like even angels can't figure this out. Now, if, if you're like me, you read that line, you go, oh boy, we're in trouble. If angels can't figure this out, um, I don't, I'm not sure I can figure it out. But, but he's really dealing with something not complicated, something that is... Um, simple, but not easy. Okay, so when he's dealing with the gospel, he's dealing with something simple. He, he has become a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, and he followed Jesus physically on earth, and then um, he has seen Jesus raised from the dead, and now he is following the resurrected Jesus. And this is, this is valid to Peter. And, and people get into all kinds of theological and philosophical and historical dis- debates about this. But what we need to understand is when we read Peter's words, it doesn't really matter about our opinions, because he's voicing his, this is what he knows. Um, his friend and cousin John would write in his, in his epistle, he writes, the things which we have seen and we have heard and we have touched and we have handled, this is, this is real for him. And so as he writes about this in verse 13, he says, therefore, because of all the things that are true about Jesus and about salvation and about God and about the Old Testament and, the New, and all these things that are going on, because of all that is true, he says, therefore, and he makes a transition from doctrine to action. And if we're honest, uh, this is a difficult transition to make. Uh, when, when we sit down and we talk about doctrine and what does the Bible teach and all of those things, we, we, everybody's got these pretty much boilerplated ideas that we stamp on statements of faith. I, I, I'm finishing up right now, I'm finishing up a class on, on Baptist history. Um, which could be subtitled "Dividing for Stupid Reasons," um, but but uh, but the, um, the the Baptists the Baptists really wanted everybody to know what they believed, and so they started to draft these statements of faith. And there's um, there's one that was done in Philadelphia, and then there was one that was done in New Hampshire, the 1833 New Hampshire uh, statement of uh, uh, um, yeah, the New Hampshire. Uh, confession um, and they go through and they, they want to articulate and, and over time we, we get we get more and more involved in stating all of these beliefs about every little specific thing that we have ever adventured upon and you get these statements of faith that are 20 30 pages long dealing with everything I can't remember which group it was and I wish I had gotten it and I, I would have printed it just so I could hold held it um, it's some uh, Baptist organization in the south and I kid you not, their statement of faith, which they have worked on for the entire 20th century, runs to 65 pages. It has articles on thermonuclear war. I, I'm not making this up. All right, on the environmental movement, on specific people. All right, they have articles of faith on John Piper and Rick Warren and all these Christian leaders. And they, they wanted to make sure everybody had a doctrinal statement on every single little thing. And I got to tell you, that's a waste of time. It's a waste of time, and Lynn knows. <laughs> Here's what the Apostle Peter believed. He lays it out in the first few verses, and he says, Therefore, 
Um, and, and I want to I spend just a little bit of time about what doctrine should do. Doctrine should move us to action. If, it's to, if the only action you get out of a belief is feeling more right than the next guy, that belief is not valid. It's not worth your time. Well, we got the doctrine of sanctification completely correct. Everyone else used one pronoun and we used this pronoun. All right, that, that's craziness. It's craziness. And, and you say, does that really happen? You better believe it. Um, you better believe that, that there are, there's something in the neighborhood of like 5,000 Baptist associations in America. Not in the world, in America, for 100,000 churches. And the Southern Baptists make up a big chunk of that, which means a lot of these associations are one and two churches who are so right you know, they are so right that they are the only ones who are right and everybody else is wrong. Um, it's very, very easy to get lost in that. The Apostle Peter doesn't want us to get lost in that. He lays out some basic doctrine. He, he has laid out the orthodox view of the Trinity, the Godhead. He talks about Jesus. He talks about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Um, he lays that very out and he talks about salvation, that it is grace through Jesus Christ. He lays that down. He says, and then this moves you to something it moves you to something therefore whenever you read the word therefore in the bible think of that word as a movement from one thing to what the result of that thing is and look at what he says the result of his doctrine is he says therefore prepare your minds now the the phrase that's used in verse 13 is it literally means um you know how people dress in the Bible, right? Toga, you know, wrap the thing over your arm. You look very like you're out of a scene of Julius Caesar. Okay, and only Romans dressed like that. But, but everybody tended to wear these kind of long, loose-fitting clothes. Do you know why people wore long, loose-fitting clothes in the Mediterranean? There's, it's hot. And loose-fitting clothes are cooler than tight clothes. Um, and... Uh, well, synthetic fabrics have changed that. But back in the day, when you were wearing wool, um, the last thing you wanted was something tight and wool, all right? or tight and linen, all right? which is the other fabric that they tended to use. Um, they didn't really make things out of cotton. So, so, all right, so you get a nice, big, baggy thing. There's a problem with a nice, big, flowing thing uh, when you are being chased by a lion. All right? Um, or you're going into battle. You really, you really don't want long and flowing at that moment. You want, you want short and, and, and easily moving. And so what they would do is they had a belt around, and they would take the middle of that robe, and they would pull it up, and they would tuck it in the belt. And that gave them freedom of movement. Um, they looked funny, but they could move around. All right? And this line, prepare your minds for action, it's literally that you... It, that's the idea. Is you pull this up, you pull the fabric up through the middle, and you tuck it into your belt. That's, that's really what they're talking about. Um, girding your loins, one of the great lines from the King James Bible that makes it into translations. Gird your loins. And you just sit there and go, what? Are we, what is girding? Um, and, and why are we doing it? All right, that's what it means. It means to bring that, that robe up and tuck it in your belt to be for action. But he says, he says, prepare your minds. Gird the loins of your mind for action. So here's the basic doctrine. Here are some basic ideas. But then what flows out of that is a preparation for action. 
Now, how many of you have a kid, because, you know, we adults, we never have this problem, except wives. How many of you have a husband whose brain is not always gird for action? All right. Now, guys, we all know how this works. We, our brains, well, all right, if you don't know this, this is the way, ladies, if you don't know this is how men's brains work, let me just explain it. Men's brains are divided up into a bunch of little grid lines, like a waffle. All right, and each, each space of the waffle has something important to him. So in my brain, there is a waffle space for football. There's actually six. Um, there's, there's a space for martial arts. There's a space for school. There's a space for work. There's a space for family. There's a space for stuff. And then there are, there are several holes in my waffle that are completely empty. And every once in a while, I meander into one of those to think about nothing. Yo, and my wife and daughter will come into the room because they're women, and women's houses, brains are not waffles, they're spaghetti, all right, a tangled, tangled mess of everything being connected, and they walk in, they say, you know, Eric, I was thinking about da-da-da-da-da, and guys, you all know that this is what really happens to you, you go like this, you go, I hear something, <laughs> and, and you realize, oh, she's talking to me, what was it, and you're trying to rewind, you know, trying to catch up with the words. You know, this whole thing that's going on, because guys, that's how guys do. Guys, sometimes our brains go inactive. Women's brains never go inactive. There's always something going on. You know, it's always processing. And, and guys, I got to tell you, you need to keep your wives' minds active um, for one reason. Because if you let them be inactive, they will inevitably go back to the worst thing you ever did. And you will be in trouble again. So you don't want that to happen. But, but guys, guys might... Ladies, you can explain it to your husbands later. All right, but but the, the reality is our brains, all right, we, we have this thing. All right. It's different when your mind is is gird for action. How many of you have ever sat in church for twenty minutes and then realized the pastor was preaching? You had no idea what he was talking about. Your brain yeah, Ryan, I know, I know. <laughs> Only for the last seven or eight years, right? <laughs> The reality is our minds are often inactive. They're not gird for action. They're not prepared. And as a result, we're drifting and our spiritual lives, our doctrine and our actions are disjointed. Our minds are not ready to act. And as a result, we are carried along by whatever wind or moment or emotion or sentiment that comes along because we're not prepared to act. And the number one thing you need to be aware of about the Christian faith is the Christian faith is not a set it and forget it. We don't just don't say we accept these doctrines and now I can do whatever I want to do. The Christian faith is an intelligent faith. It's not an intellectual faith. It's an intelligent faith. Our brains and minds and imaginations and creativity and thought processes and logic all need to be engaged in our faith. And one of the number one problems that has occurred in the church is that we have turned off the intelligent part of our faith. And we have just gone with automatic responses. So we see something in the news media and everybody freaks out. And somebody famous says something incredibly stupid and we all like it on Facebook. Yeah. I'm for that. I am okay with And we never think and process. We never, we never realize this. This happened in the 1980s when every Christian in the world had to be a Republican or they were going to hell. 
Now, you guys may not remember this, but I remember this. I was a part, my dad was a part of the moral majority where the, it was all about, if you're a Christian, you are voting for Ronald Reagan. And now, Ronald Reagan's a cool guy, don't get me wrong. But people just disengaged their mind, and whatever, whatever religious leader told them to do, they did. That is not the Christian faith. The Christian faith is an intelligent faith. We engage with our culture and we think about what we're saying before we say it. I have seen some Christians say some stupid, stupid things. Well, let me tell you something. I'm going to take an illustration from what's happened in the past week. With all the craziness about racism that's happened in the last six months, right? This, this unstable young man walks into this church in Charleston. He sits in a Bible study. And then he guns people down because their skin is the wrong color. And you know what? The, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, that's what AME stands for, um, was founded after the revolution by, by uh, former slaves and free men who felt that they were not being respected in the white Episcopalian churches and they started their own churches. This is, they were at the forefront of racial rec- reconciliation before it even existed. All right? Charleston was a major force in this. And you know what they did? You know what their response was? Their response could have been what happened in Baltimore. It could have been what's happened all over our country. But you know what their response was? They forgave. You say, well, they're not our kind of Christian. Somebody in that church has been thinking about how do we respond if this comes to our hometown. Someone was thinking. And when this happened, I guarantee there were family members that were outraged, that were angry. And somebody said, let's think about how would Christ respond to this. And as a response, they they diffused the whole situation. News media was waiting. They were waiting with bated breath for another chaotic moment. And that Charleston church just stood up and said, we forgive. We forgive. Wow. That's what, when we engage our intellect, when we are intelligent in our faith, we have our doctrine, but we act on that doctrine. We have our beliefs, but we act on it. We transform the world. We leave the world with their mouths agape because they did not expect the Christians to do that. And it's a shame that they don't expect us to do that because that's what we should be doing. We have an intelligent faith. And then look at what he says. He says, and be sober-minded now, I don't need to tell you what sober is. If you've ever been to a family reunion, you know the difference between sober and not sober. All right? The guy in the corner trying to pick up his cousin, not sober. All right? Sober-minded means clear. Clear-minded. Because if you're intoxicated, the alcohol that, that at, at low levels, the alcohol that gets into your bloodstream and into your brain, it gives you kind of a relaxing, um, uh, it's, it's a relaxant, all right? It's what it does. At a low level, it's what it does. But at a high level, what it does is it confuses the issue. It removes the barriers of the things. You need to understand this. Somebody who is intoxicated would not do anything they haven't thought about while they were sober, It's just that you remove the barriers that prohibit you from doing the things that you think about. That's why uh, drunkenness is never a good thing. In fact, the Bible has a lot to say about it. 
Bible doesn't say anything about absolute abstention, but it does say a lot about drunkenness because you lose control of the boundaries that God has placed in your life. But a sober-minded person is someone who sees clearly and acts intentionally. It's intelligent and it's intentional. Our lives manifested out of our doctrine are intelligent so that we can deal with situations. The Bible is not a comprehensive manual of how to handle everything. Oh, people were shot in Virginia, uh, in North Carolina. Turn to the North Carolina index. We have to be intelligent. God gave us brains, gave us imaginations, gave us creativity to engage our culture. But then we have to be intelligent. Uh, How many of you saw John Stewart's thing on the Charleston attack? If you haven't, you need to see it. You need to go on YouTube and Google John Stewart Charleston. John Stewart is a an unbelievable liberal, all right. But he's he's funny as all get out. Um, But he he came up and basically said, "We created this problem. We need to fix it, and we need to stop sitting there and going." Oh, and his illustration, which is valid is if this had been a Muslim, we'd be freaking out to all all get out. We'd be trying to bomb somebody, because that's what we do when Muslims attack us. We bomb somebody. But because it was an American, we go, oh, well, it's the South. That's terrible. We have to be intentional with our action. If we believe that God's love conquers all, then guess what? We have to be intelligent and intentional about how we engage that love with our culture. We can't just do anything and everything, whatever, hey, you know, well, let the wave pass, let the fad pass. We duck our heads under the, under the, in the sand, we just go, eventually this will go away. We have to engage. Now let me tell you a couple things about being intelligent and intentional. Because I think Peter, Peter was a simple guy, but I think Peter was a very intelligent guy. And let me tell you what's going to happen. When you try to engage the intellect and try to be intentional in making your doctrine into real action in the real world, guess what is going to happen? You are going from time to time to make mistakes and offend people. You are not always going to get it right. And I think that's why we we Christians are so afraid to engage our intellect and become intentional and become active to bring about the transformation of the world that we think needs to happen because we are so afraid to make mistakes. We are so afraid that if we do it wrong, we will mess something up. I can't tell you how many times I have had somebody come up to me and say, I made a mistake because of you, because of the advice you gave me, because of the influence you had. I was not a very good person when I was a teenager. I had a questionable influence on a number of individuals. Um, And people have said that to me. They have said, I did this because of you. We've got to be willing to make mistakes. We've got to be willing to apologize for the mistakes. We've got to be willing to mess up. We're, not, we're afraid to mess up. Why don't we sing all the time? Sometimes we get an unfamiliar song, right? And this is a little illustration of a big idea. But we, we, get, we get ready to sing and we go, I'm not too terribly sure how this song goes, so I will just be quiet. Now, if you've ever been around my dad, you know that he does not have that problem. 
My dad, long ago, my grandfather before him, just made this commitment since it's Father's Day. I sent my dad a Facebook message this morning. I love you, and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, but they, I, I, you know, you get in there singing, have you ever been around my dad? He starts a song, he has absolutely no idea what the song says, he has no natural timing, and my wife will tell you, my dad has no timing, and now can't carry a tune in a bucket, and he will start belting at the top of his lungs, this song, he has no idea how the song goes, he's just going to go ahead and sing it anyway, and and you go, aren't you embarrassed? He goes, no, I figured it'll get everybody else to sing louder. And that, that's his mentality. He's not afraid to make a mistake. I grew up not afraid to make mistakes. You make a mistake, it's just one less thing you're going to do again. Right? So you just move forward. But we're so afraid in our faith, we are so afraid to engage because of what might happen. And the Apostle Peter is the living manifestation of stupid decisions. He's always saying something dumb in the Gospels, and Jesus is always picking him up. He's always going on the wrong side. And, and there, there's a whole lot of more I want to get in this passage, but, I, but I, I'm not going to get to it, so I'll just save it for next week. Um, he makes this one statement at the end of this. Look at what he says. Right? So the Apostle Peter, he's writing this, and he says... It's around that line, in verse 16, it says, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I never realized this. All right? But that line comes from the book of Leviticus. It's a passage dealing with unclean things that you, are, you cannot eat. It says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, here's a wild thing about the Apostle Peter you may not know. He only ever had one supernatural vision from God. And it was a sheet full of unclean food. And God said to him, take and eat. And Peter said, I can't, it's unclean. He does it three times. And God was preparing Peter to reach the Gentiles, the nations. When God says, be holy, right? When God says, be holy, he's saying to you, here is what is true. Engage in it and act in the world and don't it doesn't matter what you think the rules are. It doesn't matter what you think what you think public opinion is. It doesn't matter the way that you've been trained. If God says do it, do it. If we if our doctrine lines us up for something. I I have a I have a very deep-seated doctrinal belief there is no such thing as race. I cannot find race in the Bible. I don't mean running. I mean Segregating people based on the color of skin and their genetics. I don't believe it exists. I, I think it's a made-up, it's a made-up idea created by hateful people. But if that does not flesh out, if that does not flesh out in my attitude toward racial violence. If it doesn't come out, if I don't go ahead and and act on that because everybody's going to have an opinion about it, because public response is going to be so bad, because I'm going to be looked down on because of my view of those things. And so I back away even though I know that the logical conclusion of what I believe is to do and say certain things, but I back away then do I really believe that? 
Do I really believe it? Holiness is the opposite of conformity. Holiness is the opposite of ignorance. To to honor God, to love God, to be holy before God is to not be forced into conformity. It is to, to refuse to substitute ignorance for intelligence, to substitute religious rhetoric for biblical truth. Holiness is to honor God even if no one else does. We had a national election. I'll close with this story. And I looked at the presidential candidates. I could not vote for either one of them. So I voted for somebody who agreed with me, that I agreed with on issues. And I told somebody I loved and trusted who I had voted for. And that person browbeat me for voting my conscience. But doing what you believe means that when you can do that, when you can do what you believe, when what you believe motivates what you do, then guess what? You have risen above submission to people's opinion and you are honoring who God made you to be. We could go through any number of scenarios in life where people use pressure and compromise and the force of conformity to drive down creativity and individuality and expressions of faith. We could go through any number of those things. But let me tell you something. If the legacy we leave is Peter's legacy, which if Peter did one thing, it was he was aggressive about what he believed and he made mistakes, but ultimately he changed the world. If our legacy is to fail forward into honoring God and living in holiness in an intelligent, engaged way, then we have no regrets. We have no regrets. And we've lived honest to the God we claim to follow and honest to the things that we claim to believe. A word of prayer. As we look at the life of Peter, Jesus, your, your dearest friend, how he may have frustrated you at times. Yet you saw in him such tremendous potential to honor the Father and to do what you had called him to do. Father, help us to to know holiness, to know you, to allow ourselves to be defined by what we believe instead of um, defining our beliefs so that they're convenient and, and close and easy. Be yours above all things.